unique experience regarding the Holy Spirit in all of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament making up almost 80% of Scripture, that's a pretty big thing for us to pay attention to in a class on the Holy Spirit. So um, I want to draw your attention back to what we already saw at the close of Saul's involvement with the Spirit in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. If you remember the narrative that has been going on, uh, the, uh, the bringing of Samuel, the prophet, to anoint a new king in the place of Saul is where we are. David is still a boy, a boy so much so that his own father didn't even bring him to the place where the prophet had said, one of your sons I will anoint king. And he called all his brothers, Jesse did, except David. David, he left out taking care of the sheep. And God gives us one of those terrifying promises. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees straight to the heart. Uh, that's not just good news. That's also bad news if you're hiding something. Um, you know, the, the words of the Lord, the, the, uh, the focus of the Lord goes straight to the heart. Um, and this is where Samuel doesn't even believe what the Lord is doing. It doesn't make any sense to him either. As the prophet, it doesn't, it doesn't really occur to him how this is going to happen. He's thinking from the tallest of them, the most impressive of them, the most accomplished of them, the eldest of them. And the Lord just goes, no, 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 no. All the way down to the littlest runt of all of them, down to David, bring him in from the livestock outside, bring him in from the barns. And here the Lord says to Samuel to anoint David. And I want you to see there in that narrative, uh, verse 13 that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is unique because the reality is every time we've seen the Holy Spirit do something, it's for a single event or for a single chain of events. And then the spirit leaves that person. There's been no experience thus where the spirit comes upon somebody and stays with them from that day forward. But as we're going to see today, the experience of David is from that day as a boy, anointed king in promise of the future, when he becomes king, all the time he is king, in the writing of the Psalms and everything else, all the way to the very last words that we're going to read of David at the end of 2 Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord never left him not once. Yes, ma'am. Noah is never expressed as uh, having the Spirit of the Lord rush on him in any specific way. Right. Yes, ma'am. In the very next sentence, it says, and the spirit departed. Saul. Uh, Saul, but in other words, it means it had been with him. Correct. So the spirit of the Lord had been with Saul many different instances. And this was the last instance. And you can see what replaces this instance was a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. And that will then take over and occur in about five different instances. And this is when David comes in and plays the harp. And so you're... If, if we were extending this class to multiple years, we would spend entire hours dealing with how the Spirit is interacting between Saul and David because it's really quite fantastic. Um, we're not going to do that here because I actually want to do a whole overview in one semester. Um, maybe someday when we get there. Uh, but that you are correct in that uh, in the writing of this, Samuel, who wrote First Samuel, specifically points out that the Spirit leaves Saul the same moment that he alights upon David and then stays with David forever. And Samuel points this out because the very last chapter of Second Samuel that we're going to end in today is the last words of David on his deathbed, and he talks about this experience throughout his life. So that's where we're going to end up today. So um, you're right to point it out. Um, so I want you to see something because when we get involved with David, it's quick to lose track of what's going on. When the Spirit of the Lord comes onto somebody or, or empowers somebody to do something, what is the thing that we should be looking for? What's the main thing that the Spirit of the Lord is doing? If you recite the Nicene Creed, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, Right? This is said because in every instance where the Spirit of the Lord is involved, He is bringing life in some way or somehow. Every time. 
Uh, and, and in some places, it's a down payment on future development. And so we're not looking at something happening just on this day. But with David, we get one of the most unique layouts, even though he's a king, looking forward to the future of the Messiah, the king that would come. What kind of person would that be? What kind of person would that be? How would the Spirit interact with him someday? And so you got to understand when we're dealing with David, we are dealing with a thousand years before Jesus is born, remnants of what he will look like, what to look for, the kind of person to look for, right? What do we know about Jesus when he came as far as for his appearance? He had no form or comeliness by which we should desire him. He didn't stand out of the crowd. He wasn't head and shoulders above everyone else. He wasn't necessarily much more good looking than anyone else. He just looked like a regular rabbi in the first century. What about David? Lord doesn't look at the outward appearances. Lord looks at the heart. There's something that God is going to do in the ultimate promise of Messiah that's not going to involve somebody who just has this overwhelming appearance. It's not like when Jesus was walking around, he had this aura around him. He didn't. That's our artistic making. He just looked like a normal guy. In fact, so much so that people just go, isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, he's from Nazareth. What Can anything even good come from that little town, that podunk place? That's completely meaningless. And this is, this is how God is specifically working because he's saying, and we'll see this in the prophets as we continue to ramp up to the anticipation of Messiah. It's not by strength. It's not by might. It's only by my spirit. These things will occur. And David is where all of that begins. The anticipation that the Spirit of the Lord is going to bring a king that will bring life. David is the first king that will bring life. How? Because not only is he foreshadowing the Christ, it is also through his progeny, through his descendants, that the Christ will come. That is promised to David directly. And this is one of those things that David gets to experience in quite a unique way. Um, when David is, uh, you can go ahead and turn to First Chronicles 12. When David is anointed king, Saul is still king. That leads to some really strange interactions. Uh, Saul begins chasing David. David uh, binds together a bunch of mighty men. A lot of the elders of the land pledge fealty to David because of what Samuel had said. We are going to anoint him king. He will be the next king. Whether or not Saul is still king is almost irrelevant. Yes, he is the current anointed. You can't go out and kill him, but he can't kill you either. And so for David, it led to going to the wilderness, going to the stronghold, that he would uh, live in for several years with his, what's called David's mighty men. Uh, And that's where we pick up this story as David is several years along. The elders of the land have pledged fealty to him. We're not going to let Saul kill you. We're not going to go kill Saul because the Lord anointed him to be king as well. Remember when David was in the cave and he had opportunity to kill Saul and he just cut off the edge of his robe and then he actually felt an enormous guilt for that because I've raised up my hand against the Lord's anointed. They were both the Lord's anointed at that moment. which, But David understood, he's the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to destroy him in any way. That's between him and the Lord. When he dies, I am king. He can't remove that from me either. And so what it really led to is that David has to protect himself, but he can't kill Saul. And so it leads him to the wilderness. It leads him to uh, living in a stronghold where Saul can't get him, and he's not going to be attacking Saul. And so that's where we pick up this story in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Good morning, Phyllis. Sorry we ran out of chairs. Oh, I'm sorry, late. Oh, no worries. I'm sorry. No worries. Disrupting everything. So, yeah, that's, that's my byline. Okay, so we'll pick up in verse 16 in 1 Chronicles 12. So the setting is that David is in a stronghold with his mighty men, hundreds of men to come out to uh, help protect this so that Saul won't kill him. And all the elders of the land have pledged fealty to David and to protection of him and not to support Saul in his desire to destroy him. Verse 16, And some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold of David. And David went out to meet them, not knowing who they were. I mean, it could be that Saul had bounded together men from from Benjamin and from Judah to go and kill David on his behalf. So David's like, I don't know what you're coming to the stronghold for. So David went out to meet them and said, 
If you have come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if you, but if the intention is to betray me to my adversaries, although there is no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. That's a remarkable statement, by the way. Verse 18. Then the spirit clothed one of the guys who was in charge of these guys coming from Benjamin and Judah. Then the spirit of the Lord clothed Amasai, chief of the 30. And he said, we are yours, O David. And with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you and peace to your helpers for your God helps you. Then David received them and made them officers of his troops. You know, is anything strange about this interaction? Before the church age, there's only one other time where the involvement of the Spirit of the Lord runs into himself in the wild. David has the Spirit of the Lord here. So does Amasai. That's never happened before, where two men, distinct, join forces when they both have the Spirit of the Lord clothing them in unique ways. This is the only time that's happened before. The only time it had happened before with Moses and the 70 elders was a division of the Spirit that Moses had so that they all go out together. This was, if you want to put it in more crass human terms, the only time in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit ran into himself in the wild. It's a really remarkable story because what we learn about this is what should we expect when the Holy Spirit runs into himself in the wild? That's going to teach us a lot about the church age, isn't it? Those of you who are Christians, you have the Spirit in you as well. Involvement in the church and the gathering together is the Spirit running into himself in the wild. And so here we see the first instance of what occurs when that happens. What is it that Amasai says to David? They pledge fealty to him. Peace, peace, peace. Your God helps you. This is the same reminder that Christians, when we come to the New Testament, give to one another every time we come together. This is the foreshadowing of what it is when the Spirit of the Lord works with the Spirit of the Lord involving in different people. And we're going to see this when we come to the New Testament. What is it that the Spirit of the Lord constantly reminds us of? But what, of, what is ours in Christ? The gospel of peace. These things are portrayed here in a narrative format that we don't actually see pay off until we come to the New Testament. It's really quite remarkable. When the Spirit of the Lord clothed Amasai, the chief of the 30, he says, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. There's no rebellion. There's no, there's no overcoming. There's no betrayal. This is the things that David was concerned about. And when they come there, it says, no, we recognize who the Lord has anointed. We recognize the authority that God has given you. We have come to remind you of peace, peace and peace to your helpers, to you, to us. Your God is with you. I would say that for Christians, that's a great example of what our spiritual service is to one another. Constantly reminding us that God is with us. And God is for us because we are his redeemed. He has called us since before the foundation of the world. He will not turn his back on us. When we come to something like Romans chapter 5, for instance, it says, we have peace with God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is something that we continually remind each other of. And it's something here that David is learning in narrative format, right? But not everything goes swimmingly for David. He is here anointed king both times, one as a child and one when he actually takes the throne. And then he continues into his life as king. Now, he is king for 40 years. And over those 40 years, he maintains uh, a, a relationship with the Lord that is thoroughly unique as far as for anything else is concerned. Any other king, any other ruler, even any other prophet that is evidenced by the fact that he ends up writing half of the Psalms. And we're going to look at four of them. And they illustrate part of the journey that David takes with the Spirit of the Lord, because here's where he refers to him directly. First one is found in Psalm 51. Now, I'm taking these chronologically. So if you're not realizing, I'm all these references for David's life, I'm following David's life chronologically. So we're bouncing all around. 
but this is the order in which they happened. And that's, I think, really important. Um, Psalm 51, the great psalm of confession. What, what did this follow in David's life? What did he do to bring about this? Yes, ma'am. Bathsheba, yes. Yep. And not only Bathsheba, but also her husband, which was actually even in greater sin. He killed him. Right. Yeah. Now, this is a remarkable thing because, yeah, I mean, so that that opens up a whole nother ball of wax, doesn't it? You know, I mean, when you advance an army and then pull back everyone except that guy, yeah, that's pretty much murder. And, and this, is, this is one of the reasons why uh, David, in this psalm of repentance here, uh, says for his own expression that he is guilty of shedding of blood. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't argue that this was a sensible thing to do or a good thing to do. He knows it was an absolute failure. You've got to understand, David is writing this for worship in the temple. Imagine that. Think of the worst thing you've ever done. And you write a song about it for people to worship God for his saving acts in your life. What kind of humility does that take? That God, despite this... I mean, we have, we have people that are rewriting hymnals now to remove uh, from Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me to that saved a person like me. No, no, no. Let our sin be what it is so that we may welcome the salvation of God and the joy that that brings. Imagine taking the worst thing you have done, the worst chain of events, and putting it on display for an entire nation and saying, God has saved me even from this. Yes, ma'am. Did all the people know what they had done? Yes. They did. Yeah. I know he knows they had married. married yeah. But they knew that he had... The yes. Yeah. When um, the 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 quickest way to have soldiers tell each other things is to betray one of them in front of their eyes. Um, those who received the orders from David to push Uriah forward and to pull back his protection, everybody knew what was happening. And beyond that, then all of a sudden, the king's orders about this one guy and the king's married to his wife, everybody knew immediately. Um, that, and that, and also Samuel's rebuke was not in private. It was in public. Uh, that rebuke was, you had marriage already and here you're going to steal it from somebody else. Um, yeah, the, um, and so David's position in this starts off in Psalm 51 and says, have mercy on me. O God, no, no requirement, no, you know what, you owe me this, or anything like that. There's no explaining it away. Have mercy on me, O God, not according to my goodness or my promise to do better, no, but according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. No excuses are being made. This is why this is seen as one of the the chiefest psalms of confession. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, if you chose to just destroy me from the face of the earth, you would be fully justified. Fully justified. And yet you are merciful. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. But you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This, this back and forth, and what I say as far as David's interaction with the Spirit of the Lord, from the time he was a child forward, really does a good job of reflecting what the Christian's response to the Spirit of the Lord indwelling us is from the point of salvation onwards. We have these two sides, don't we? This sin that we know is natural with us, that has been with us since we were born, and yet God delights in truth in the inward being and teaches wisdom to the secret heart. That Those two verses there, in verses 5 and 6, set up that, that wrestle back and forth. Nobody else in the Old Testament talks like this. Nobody. Because nobody else had the Spirit of the Lord nonstop throughout his life. 
Now we look at that and we go, you know, well, you know, for, for Christians, this is the normative experience, right? We have this sin that dwells in us still and it's frustrating and it's annoying and it's, it's sometimes just absolutely destroys us both in guilt and in blame and in everything that we know we would earn if it weren't for God's saving act in our life. And what happens is the Spirit of the Lord continually works on us in spite of that thing's presence. Romans chapter 7 is a great passage to go to if you're curious about this because, because Paul talks about that experience directly saying that there is these two things. One that has been present with me ever since before I was saved, and that is my sinful heart. And now that God has saved me, sin has gone to the members, but it's no longer just the heart. I actually want to do the things of the Lord, and yet sin still dwells in me. That's that's a direct quote from Romans 7. Teaching me to do the things I don't want to do. To go places I don't want to do. To say things I don't want to say. Paul expresses that frustration. Here we have the same thing with David, and it is unique in the Old Testament. Unique. David's the only one. And yet for us, we know this to be the normative experience of of a Christian, is that we have the Spirit of God constantly wrestling against our own sins. What does David say here in verse 7? This is where he goes into the mechanics of all of this and what his actual requests are. Purge me with hyssop. That's a really wiry, brush-like plant. Purge me with hyssop. Basically, um, uh, in, in our language and in our culture, an equivalent would be a steel wool. Scrub me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. He knows the life that the Spirit brings. Let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Look at that. How is the Spirit interacting with sin in his life? Is he just letting him get away with it? No. It's causing pain all the way down to the core of his being. That is what life does when sin comes around. It causes suffering that we would not continue in that. It is one of the things why we encouraged uh, the, the, the preaching of the word of God so much because this is how the spirit of God speaks to our heart about what we should desire, care, and love. And here, what is this experience? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. Lowercase s. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's his spirit. He wants to actually feel clean again. But how do you clean yourself from bloodshed and adultery? The answer is you can't, which is why all of this is a request that God cleans him. He can't do anything about it. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't throw me away. Don't cast me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He knows that God is not compatible to live with sin. And so his reaction to this in his ignorance uh, and, and perfectly legitimate ignorance, because what did he see with Saul before? What happened when Saul sinned? Correct. The spirit was taken from him. And David here goes, am I going to mess up the promised Messiah to come? Am I going to mess up? Now he's well into his reign here. Am I going to mess up the the line through which Messiah is going to come? That ultimate salvation will be brought to the people of God simply because of one day of stupidity? He's looking at this and saying, is this going to mess up the entire plan of God's salvation for all of his people and the world? Imagine the weight that that carries. Imagine the frustration that that carries. And he's saying, if you take your Holy Spirit from me, none of this stuff comes to pass. And I will be guilty of far more death than just Uriah the Hittite. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Not mine. 
Not, not praise you because of what you have done through my life. No, no, no. I will praise you for your righteousness, your salvation, your work, your spirit, your cleaning of me with hyssop, your cleaning me with a clean heart, your keeping your Holy Spirit with me when I didn't deserve any of it. You can hear the Holy Spirit coming through his words. I want to bring life and I fear that I have caused nothing but death. The answer from the Lord does not come immediately. As is the case with most of us, we pray for something and we don't see the outcome of it. But David eventually receives his answer as to whether or not the Lord was going to remove his spirit from him. We won't get there yet. I want you to sit in tenuous abeyance. Turn to Psalm 104. David continues walking with the Lord. He continues the deliverance of his people. He continues to interact with the Spirit of the Lord. He wants to build the temple of the Lord, but the Lord doesn't let him. You've shed too many people's blood. Saul had killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David was a man of war because at his point, not only the Ammonites, but the Philistines were setting themselves up to destroy and wipe out the people of God. What's the Holy Spirit's interaction when people come to kill others? To stop it. And in order to stop it, as we saw all through the judges, sometimes you have to kill the attacker. And that's exactly what the Lord was doing through David. But because of that, and because of the perception that that would carry, in the desire to build a temple, God says, Fine, you can lay out the stuff for the temple, but mainly I have used you to bring worship and deliverance to the people, and that required too much bloodshed for you to go out and build something that's supposed to bring life. You can't build the temple. Yes, ma'am. Is he still alive when the temple was built? No, he never saw it. No, his son. So David laid up all of the stone, all of the logs, all of the decorations, all of the. Uh, all the furnishings, the gold, everything, and drew up all the plans and was not allowed to see it. Really remarkable thing. Solomon built it, and then it became known as Solomon's Temple. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So uh, that's a really good parallel to make, actually, because Moses was kept out of the Promised Land, the very thing that he was aiming for for 40 years, which is interesting because that's the exact same length of David's reign. There's probably a lot more parallels there I've never seen before. But why was Moses kept out of the promised land? A lot of people think it was disobedience. It wasn't that. It's not because he struck the rock. It's because of what he said. He, in striking the rock, basically stood next to God and said, why is it that God and I always have to correct you? He forgot himself. And God kept him out of the land. And God says explicitly why you're not allowed to come into the land. It's because you didn't uphold me as holy. Man does not stand next to God in judgment. Yes, ma'am. Moses knew long before he died that he was not going to be allowed into the promised land, right? Yes, it was several years. Was David aware that he wasn't going to be there? Yeah. That's interesting, too, actually. Both of them knew up to the point of their death and several years beforehand. The rest of their life being faithful. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's a lot more parallel between Moses and David than I've ever actually considered. I'll bet you there's a lot more there. Betrayed by his own family as well. Moses had that in Numbers as well. With his own brother, Aaron, and Miriam, his sister. Fascinating. That'd be a really interesting study for someone to do. I'm sure somebody's done it before, but um, quite a thing. Yeah, good good point there. Um, when David continues on through his life, he, he is... Um, he is writing psalms. This is one of the things that makes him very, very unique. He's a man of war, but he's a man of song. And the things that he writes are just out of this world. He writes almost exactly half the psalms. We know he wrote 73 of them. We suspect he wrote another four, but didn't sign his name to him. Uh, so, but that's, there's 150 psalms, so... Let's just say 75 and make it really even and nice. And he wrote half the Psalms. And some of the stuff he writes is known throughout the world. And, and this, this is a guy that had no training. He just had a harp in a field with sheep. 
And that stayed with him all along. Kind of a remarkable thing. And as he continues to go along, music just emanates from this guy. Poetry, psalms, the whole desire was to worship the Lord at the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was still the place to worship God during his reign. Yes, ma'am. Other places. So, yeah, who, who's to say, honestly, because God never really expresses what he does there, but um, it's just so remarkable. I think it has a lot to do with subverting expectations. You know, we look at somebody and we go, oh, they can't accomplish that. And the God says, that's exactly why I chose that person. I mean, the first place that we see that instance is we see that David's brothers are are on the front line against the Philistines and Goliath keeps coming up uh, and and cursing the people of God. And David was just bringing food to his brothers to help supply them. And he goes, what in the world is happening? They're sending this guy out and he's cursing us. Why would we ever accept that? And everyone's like, oh, shut up. You know, you're too small. You can't this and that. David's like, wait, none of you are going to fight him? I'll go fight him. And, and this subversion of, of expectations, it wasn't because of David's great skill that that stone flew and sunk into Goliath's head. It had nothing to do with David. That was the whole point. No little boy, no teenage boy or whatever he was at this time has the strength to do something like that. I don't care how many times you've taken down a bear or a lion. That's not possible. That's, that's exactly what the Spirit of the Lord is doing. When there's desperation, when there's need of life, he's going to bring it in the most surprising ways possible. And we're going to see this over, over and over again. We see it with Jesus, right? Nobody expected this carpenter's son to be the savior of the world, and yet here he is. You know, we grew up with him in synagogue, and the very synagogue that he grew up with tried to throw him off the cliff because of what he was preaching. Psalm 104 is this wonderful psalm about, it's a really good example of how David writes about the, the created world and how it, it expresses the majesty of God throughout all of these things. Foundations of the earth, the mountains, the springs, the animals, the livestock, the trees, the sun, moon, and stars. Um, we'll pick up with that, that kind of concept in verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you have formed to play in it. Yes, that is a sea monster. Verse 27, these all look to you. What a, what a wonderful statement. To give them their food in due season, everything depends on you. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. What is he saying? When the Lord's involved with his creation, life teems. When he hides his face, it dies. Is that not the experience of the scripture's expression of the Holy Spirit throughout? What does he say? Verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Even when judgment has come and God has turned away his face and death has reigned, the moment he turns back, the spirit of the Lord comes and the ground is renewed. He uses this in terminologies that any society that's living on farming would understand. If the spirit of the Lord is to be equated with spring and summer and harvest and plentifulness and food, then the turning of God's face should be acquainted with winter. Death, suffering, and no ability to grow anything. And this, this, is, this is how he talks about the Spirit working with this. And so what he desires in verse 31 is, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. And may the Lord rejoice in his work, who looks on the earth and it trembles, and who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being, and may my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Now wait a second. I thought if you had the Holy Spirit, you were focused on life. Shouldn't that mean he wants life for every single person? No. 
not for those who set their mind and their purpose and intention against the Lord. The Lord seeks his people to be delivered from such people. Now, the Lord will save some of those, as he has with us. We all once were enemies of God. And God chooses which of his enemies to save, and he does so in his own way. But for those who are actively desiring to destroy God's purpose and set their minds against his salvation, they are no friends of the people of God. And what David is saying here is the same. In fact, one-third, one-third of the Psalms are what's called imprecatory Psalms, prayers that God would destroy the wicked. How many of our hymns and how many of our songs in church reflect that? A third of them are on this aspect of how God works salvation is by saving some and condemning others. Everyone deserves condemnation. Salvation is the exception. We all deserved it. Would we admit this? Right? Unless God saved me, I too would be on the road to perdition with no hope and without God in the world. But God saved me. The same passive tense. It's not that I found God and made my life better. No, God saved me. It's his work. It's his act. And he owns the glory for that. And this is where David is working out these things of how God is is working in the midst of his people. Now, David is at a strange part of history where ultimate salvation is not fully seen, but it's promised. Messiah would bring something of a permanent salvation. He had no idea what it would be, but he did know that it would come through him in some way or another. I want you to turn to Psalm 143. He was focused thoroughly on what his responsibility was in the midst of following God for goals he didn't understand. Can we also say that we understand this aspect of living with the Spirit of God? Do you know where you will be 10, 20 years from now? Where will the Spirit lead? What will he do? Does he need you to understand where it is in order to get you there? No. We don't need to know the goal. We only need to know that the Spirit of the Lord travels with us. This is what David ends up learning. So that our main focus, our main focus is the path that we are walking, not the destination we're heading towards in our life. Psalm 143 expresses this directly. We're going to read the whole psalm because it's short. And we're aiming at verse 10. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Not a single person is righteous before the Lord. For the enemy has pursued my soul, and he has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit lowercase s, that's him talking about his own spirit, faints within me, and my heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done, and I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you, and my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, for my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit, to the grave. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. All of this is salvific language. All of it. Every bit of it. In fact, this could very well occur in the New Testament and fit perfectly in there. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit, there's where it switches, lead me on level ground. This is the desire of the person having the Spirit of God for their life. Not that you would show me what the outcome is so that I can bring it about. I'm very glad God does not show me 10 years down the road. It'd terrify me every single time. And I would seek to either accomplish it in my own power, or I would seek to avoid it with all my own power. Do you know the same? I would much rather this exact thing, that God's Spirit leads us on level ground, even if we don't know what it will look like in 10 years. David asks that God would teach him to do his will. I want to want the things God wants. David, in another place, wrote, 
that those who delight themselves in the Lord receive the desires of their heart. The Lord gives them correct desires inside their heart when they delight in the Lord. And if as a Christian you are flustered or frustrated with the current station in life or or position in something, may I say, delight yourself in the Lord and you will desire what he desires. That's not me promising that. That is directly from Scripture. You want to know what the will of the Lord is? You want to know what direction to take in life? Don't focus on goals. Don't focus on decisions. You will never receive the answer for such things. Delight yourself in the Lord. What you will want to do as a growing Christian is the will of the Lord. It's not some mystical thing where we lay out a fleece. We're not in the times of Gideon. It's not some mythical thing where we, where we throw open the Bible and, and blindly put our finger down and go, that's my life verse, God has directed me there. Nowhere do we find that this is how wise Christians make decisions. No, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the right desires of your heart. This is what David is desiring here. Let your good spirit leave me, lead me on that level ground. That is evidence of the spirit's work in someone's life. You say, well, you're on the level ground. Where are the mountaintop experiences? Where are those extreme parts of life? This is patient, long-form fruit bearing. Long patience. It's exactly what Jesus says about bearing fruit. Remember in the parable of the soils, where he expresses there's, there's four types of people who, who the word of God is preached to. Those who do not receive it, those who receive it quickly, and then the cares of this world choke them out. Those who receive it with exuberance and then abandon it because something else comes up. And then those where the seed falls in good soil. And then there's multiple types of those who fall in good soil. Those who bear fruit 30-fold, 60, and 100. What does he say? But all of them, Bear that fruit with patience. It is a long, level ground, the Christian life. It is not a time for extremes. It is not times for mountaintop experiences, because I promise you, after the mountaintop comes valleys. We desire a long, level, steady ground. Why do we desire that? Because that's how God works with things long form. If you want to see it, God does this with the Messiah, Jesus himself. He sends John the Baptist for what purpose? Who remembers? What was the prophecy? You just prepare the way for the Lord, make straight and level his paths. You look at Jesus' life, you ever wonder? He spent 30 years doing no miracles no preaching of the kingdom of heaven, and there were thousands and thousands of people dying all around him. Patience. The Lord has his purposes. He was not called to do so until the Spirit alighted upon him at his baptism, and from that point forward, preached the kingdom of heaven and the repentance of mankind. The level, straight places that for him led to the cross, to the grave, to Easter, to heaven again. All of that is level ground. Do we know how long John the Baptist No. I believe it was somewhere around four years, three or four years. Because he was only six months older. Right, but he didn't start at 30. Um, Jesus was, Luke says, approximately 30 years old when he started. Um, I don't know that we know the exact time frame. I do know it was long enough to become quite famous. Um, which would usually be a, a couple of seasons, especially doing a ministry out in the desert. So that would be extrapolated. I'm not familiar with any reference of time frame for John the Baptist's ministry. Good question. Yes, Jack. In Jesus' years before he was 30, he spent a lot of time in the temples. He spent was some time in the temples, yeah. Learning or teaching? Uh, we only have one story from that when he was 12. And it sure looks like he was teaching already at that point, um, which is terrifying, <laughs> honestly. Um, uh, if you ever want to feel behind, <laughs> just listen to Jesus. Um, yeah, so the only reference we have to that is also in the Gospel of Luke, where it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. So that's the only reference we have to that. 
Um, he obviously grew in stature. He wasn't born a you know full grown man. But how how? And I'm so grateful we don't have many descriptions of this time period in his life. How does the Son of God grow in wisdom? He is referred to as wisdom itself, capital W. No idea how the incarnation can work like that. It is, it is behind the veil of our own ignorance. There's just no way for us to work it out. Yes, ma'am. I just have to say the Holy Spirit within us has to um, develop his knowledge, brought the knowledge to him. So, so when we get to his story, we will find that the Holy Spirit brought about his conception, but the Holy Spirit was not involved with Jesus until his baptism. So that brings a whole nother line to it because Jesus says all the miracles that he does is through the power of the Spirit and the will of the Father. In other words, every miracle Jesus does in his thing is the whole Trinity at work. Every single one of them, well, which is remarkable. But there is no reference because, again, when we're in the Gospels, we're in the Old Testament as far as the Spirit is concerned. And so we should not expect unbroken Holy Spirit involvement. Um, we should expect... Uh, by the way, the only other time where the Spirit of the Lord interacted was when Mary and Elizabeth met each other. And yeah, the Holy Spirit had, was filled John the Baptist and brought about the conception of Jesus. And that caused responses in an unconscious preborn John the Baptist, which is just amazing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. We don't earn the Spirit even if we're sinless. Spirit of the Lord does what He does because He is an equal member of the Trinity. The Father is not over the Spirit. The Son is not over the Spirit. The Father is not over the Son. Those expressions are given to us to help us understand the roles that they carry out. Co-equal, co-eternal, all three members of the Trinity, fully God. That needs to be grasped because we do not treat the Holy Spirit as God. We don't. We treat him as like a a force or something we can play with. And if you go to really sinful churches that think that they can cast out or throw out or dole out the Holy Spirit, may God condemn such nonsense. We are not in charge of what the Spirit of the Lord does. He is in charge of the good that his people do. That's where the glory goes. Otherwise, the glory comes to us. And I don't think you want to share glory with God. He doesn't respond to that very well. Um, Psalm 139. Just turn a couple of Psalms back from 143. Psalm 139. This Psalm, David writes towards the end of his life. He writes this Psalm towards the end of his life. One of the last ones. And he speaks in retroflex, thinking back on his entire experience. So again, he's now had the Spirit of the Lord for 50 years, looking back on this whole experience towards the end of his reign. And look at the past tense in all of this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, that level path that he was praying about many years beforehand. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. And I think one of the most humbling and lovely verses in scripture, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? What a difference from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is, don't take your Holy Spirit, don't take your Holy Spirit. My sin might cause you to leave me. Here, at the end of his reign, he expresses a very different sentiment. What has he learned about the Holy Spirit? There's nowhere I can go that he's not with me. In the time that the tabernacle is the place that you worship God, you don't have a right to worship God in your home or out in the wilderness or anything. This is crazy. How is it that the Holy Spirit can be with somebody separate from the tabernacle? That's where the Holy Spirit dwelt. That's where the the Spirit of the Lord dwelt between the overcast Wings of the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. They're in the Holy of Holies, right there. And David says, look at this. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, 
you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, by the way, that's head east. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, that's the west, think of Israel. If I go to where the sun rises and I go all the way to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, basically I don't know anything that's going on. I'm on the run either from Absalom or from Saul or any of these other things. I have no idea the outcome. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And then he goes in and talks about God's intention in creating him even before he was born. Remarkable psalm. One of my favorites. Your eyes saw me when I didn't have any formed fully substance. You knitted me together. You did all this. You have done all of these things. You have stuck with me. There is no place in heaven, in the grave, on earth, east, west, dark, light that I can go that your spirit doesn't stay with me. Nobody else before Acts chapter 2 ever had this experience again. Nobody. Nobody before David. Nobody after David. Not for a thousand years. It is the most unique experience with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that there is an unbreaking fellowship between him and the Holy Spirit where it causes him to see his sins and be honest with them as they are and to respond in worship to God's marvelous mercy and grace. Sound familiar? It should. It's the life of the Christian. Don't ever hide your sin. It will find you. Don't ever steal God's glory. He will take it back. Let's hear the last words of, of David as he dies. Second Samuel chapter 23. Um, just, uh, Before we leave Psalm 139? Yeah, yeah sure. 23 and 24. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, you know, that is really uh, pertinent. To, you know, you're asking God to, to do something in, within you. To search you. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. And try me, know my anxiety. I can see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah, same same prayer he had in 104, right? Yeah, coming through the parallel there. But you, uh, you know, that's uh, that's a really trying prayer. Yes. Uh, you know, you're in some struggles or something. Go ahead and pray that, and, and God right. will really, you know, he'll purge that from you. Yes, he does. You have to, you have to, he asked him to try me, try me, right. God. Try me here and see See if there's any wicked way in there. Right. So, you know, you can go back and, you know, up to where you talked a few minutes ago about, you know, even through the tough times and stuff that David was saying here, no matter what the good, the bad, or the other, whatever, he, he just indwells in God's spirit. He really yeah. mourns for that even more and more. And right. You know, you know, it's pretty fascinating to see all this tied together, how uh, the spirit of God just never leaves. Right. And it, it works in him a desire to have unending life. Correct. And, and David writes more about unending life than anyone else in the Old Testament. Um, and I mean, even right here, you're right. The, the prayer ends with lead me in the way that doesn't ever end. Right. I don't just want level ground for my life. I want a life that doesn't end. Mm-hmm. And, and he's getting a foretaste of this here. Now, what exactly was the experience of Old Testament saints when they died? Did they go straight to heaven? There's some who that hold that it that wasn't possible until the cross. So there was soul sleep. There was all these other theories. At the end of the day, God saved his people in his own way. And he doesn't really tell us exactly how that worked. But I promise this, the spirit does not involve himself in someone's life and give them desires for life everlasting unless he's giving them life everlasting. Uh, and so that kind of myth that there's people who want to be saved, for instance, that God won't save, there's no biblical ground for that whatsoever. When somebody desires to be saved on God's terms, that is God working in them. is undeniable in Scripture. You cannot come to a place where somebody goes, now, there's all sorts of false salvations. I want God to make me happy. Okay, I mean, every false religion in the world is built on that. People can make a false religion out of Christianity. 
Um, I want God to fix my problems. I want God to take this sin away, that sin away, but don't touch that sin. That's not salvation, right? Salvation is life everlasting with a desire for God instead of sin because we know sin kills us. It just erodes our hearts. So does anger. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 23. For somebody whose experience with the Holy Spirit is as unique as this, it's important that we have his last words. And wouldn't you know it, we have David's last words. And anyone want to take a stab as to what he starts off his very last statement to the people of God in the scriptures with? Who wants to take a guess? Yep. Spirit of the Lord. That's where he starts. Watch this. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, man, that's that's quite a eulogy. His final message to the people of God starts with this phrase, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. See the the terminology of life and light? For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me, again, what's the focus? He's on his deathbed here, an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and now my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Those are the last words he has. One of my favorite little psalms in scripture. It's not in the psalms, but it's here in 2 Samuel 23. Why do you suppose after all of that, the main focus of David is not on the God of Israel expressed in normal terms or Yahweh or his covenant name or or any of these things? No, his focus is the spirit of the Lord. That's been his experience his whole life now. He cannot fathom why God chose him for this. And I think that that should reflect in every Christian's heart. God keep us from the pride of saying, it's a good thing God saved somebody like me because he really needed to use me for his kingdom. No, God give us humility to say, I still don't know why somebody like God saved somebody like me. I pray we never lose that humility because the moment we do, we lose sight of that this is God's work in us, not ours. And David here, you want to talk about a laudable reign. He was the only one to maintain a united kingdom in all the history of Israel. His son lost it because of all of his sins with his many wives and his idolatry and everything else that Solomon brought in. Saul lost it because of his own sin in sacrificing and taking on the prophetic role when he's the king. And the priestly role, by the way. David maintained the United Kingdom. Had the Spirit of the Lord from the time he was a shepherd boy, when his father, his own father, didn't believe in him. All the way to here on his deathbed. If there was anyone to ever be proud of what they had accomplished, it would be David. And yet, what is he focused on on his deathbed? Still mesmerized that the Spirit of the Lord is with someone like me. It is the God of Israel whose word is on my tongue, the God of Israel who has spoken, the rock of Israel who said to me that when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, even today, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. God works through those whom he is calling, unworthy people. In the New Testament, what what type of people does God save? Godly people? There aren't any. God justifies the ungodly and makes them Christ-like. None of that can we take credit for. 
Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees. I am the great physician. Those who don't see themselves as having need of a doctor don't go to the doctor. That's, that's a paraphrase of what he says there. Those who are well have no need of a physician. You who think you are sinless, you who think you are above other people, you don't need me. You don't want me. You will not have me. But I am the great physician. I come and I heal the sick. I heal the brokenhearted. I heal the, I heal the sinners. I save the ungodly. The godly save themselves. Dangerous stuff. Yes, ma'am. Seven here. Yep. Strange way to finish it, isn't it? Yeah, like it doesn't fit. Yep. It doesn't fit with the typical way we look at things like this, right? It does with David. Why? Because it's not as simple as God is coming to a neutral world and saving some. God is coming into the enemy's camp. Satan has rulership over this world at this time. The kingdoms of the world were given over. Everyone had pledged fealty to different gods. God chose Israel not because Israel wanted God. God chose Israel because he was going to make of them something they couldn't make of themselves. They didn't have a land. They weren't a people yet. They had no promise. They had no code of law. They had no culture, nothing. And so God makes all of that for them to bring about Messiah. God is not showing up to a world that's Eh, about God. God's showing up to a world that hates him. And that needs to be firmly grasped when we're talking about salvation and the Lord's work in this world. Because then we're not looking at everyone's okay with God. He just needs to prove himself to them. No, everyone hates God. That's what the scriptures say. And unless God brings us to life again, we too would still hate God. You say, well, I, you know, I never really had any bad feelings towards God. Yes, you did. Every single sin. Every single sin is treason against his rulership. And what, what he is expressing here is that there are those who define themselves by rebellion to God. He defines them, David does, as worthless people. They're all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Why does he say it like this? Why is it that he is addressing them this way? He's saying there are two paths in this world. Either God is for you, or you will die. This is why he's talking about the Spirit of the Lord. There's only one path of life, and it's in the fear of the Lord. Correct, correct. And what's the attitude of the people of the Lord towards those who are willfully leading their lives away from the Lord? We pray for them that God would save them. We also pray that God would, would, would stop their intentions because they lead other people to death. I mean, David has prayed at multiple points that for those who would seek to be against the Lord, that God would smash the teeth out of their mouths so that they couldn't even eat anymore and no more speaking, cut their tongues out. We should pray the same thing for false teachers that lead people to false hope in their own grave. Right? These things are still applicable to the life of the church. There's nothing that makes me more angry than when I hear somebody in a pulpit giving another gospel that leads to death and that the people who are hearing that go to hell because of what is being taught. That is something that angers me at a point that I can't even fully express. For David, it was the same thing. That is a frustrating thing. That is, a, that is an infuriating thing. And we should pray that they would be cast into hell before they lead others more towards it. Same thing here. Yes, ma'am. For those who intentionally set themselves up as false teachers, I pray both things for them, that God shut their mouths and that God bring them to repentance, yes. But it would be foolish of me to say that that does not anger me when I see people following false teachers to hell. It does. I mean, we're, we're told straight up in Second Peter chapter 2 that that's going to happen. And that God has specially reserved the darkest, blackest place in hell for such people. 
2 Peter 2 is a terrifying passage um, that talks about false teachers and the attitude towards them in the New Testament. Um, yes, sir? Sorry? Um, doesn't Jesus rebuke the Pharisees and the teachers? Yes. Uh, when he says, you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Yep. Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for in, in what does he say for that exact one? You put stumbling blocks in the ways to the kingdom of heaven, and in your teaching, you make them twice the children of hell as you are. That's, that's rough stuff, but that's direct and honest stuff. Um, David says it here. So yeah, it doesn't fit in because we typically don't pay attention to the hard stuff of scripture. That's right there, and David makes it his final words kind of remarkable. Um, okay, we are beyond time. I apologize a little bit for that, but not so much for that because David is one of the most fascinating topics of this. We are going to go into the um, unwritten prophets next, where God works through all the prophets who worked in Israel but didn't write a book. So people like Elijah and Elisha and things like this. So Spirit of the Lord is involved in every single one of them. Uh, and he's bringing out, he's going to move from the kingly role to the prophetic role as we anticipate the coming of Messiah. Uh, and what he himself, the Spirit of the Lord, will do in bringing the incarnation of the Son of God into this world. It's amazing. <laughs> so we will be with the prophets for the next probably about two months, and then we're going to see Jesus come into the world in the New Testament, I promise you, will flourish open with an understanding of what the Holy Spirit has been doing for thousands of years before Pentecost. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah.